In 2017, the Trump administration announced that it would begin phasing out DACA. Um, a number of lawsuits since then have ensued. One of those suits, the Regents of the University of California versus the Department of Homeland Security, was argued before the Supreme Court in November of last year. Fellow law student Fernanda Herrera-Spieler, who our listeners may remember from our DACA episode in the fall, attended those oral arguments for that case and joins us to discuss what it was like to be in the Supreme Court and what it was like to hear that case argued. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We are law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. So, Fernanda, great to have you back. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, Before we jump in too deep about um, the case itself and what it was like for you to be there, just to give our listeners a quick procedural history of where we are. The case that you attended comes from the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit issued a preliminary injunction, um, which essentially means they put a, a halt to what the Trump administration was doing as it pertained to DACA. In that injunction decision, the Ninth Circuit reasoned that the plaintiffs in that case were likely to prevail on the claim because the Trump administration's termination of DACA was arbitrary and capricious and therefore unlawful. So if you're not a law student and have not yet uh, had the pleasure of studying con law, the Ninth Circuit was basically saying it was unnecessary to achieve the means that the Trump administration wanted to, where they wanted to get to, um, those means were not necessarily um, the best path to get there. So there are a couple of other cases, Texas versus Nielsen, Um, if you're so inclined to do some research there. But of course, obviously, we're going to focus on this Regents of California case because that's the one that Fernanda attended. So Fernanda, before we talk about the mood of the room or anything like that, in these arguments that you were lucky enough to hear, were there references made to these arguments from the Ninth Circuit or from other cases? Yeah, so it seems as though most of the the bulk of the time was spent on the, um, the reliance interest of DACA recipients. So yes, they definitely did speak to the prior court's decisions. Um, and I think that helped them kind of frame the, the argument that there was a reliance interest. There was never any question as to whether the administration had authority to, to end DACA. You know, that's something that every administration has the decision to make, especially since it was an executive decision. But I think here, what they hinged on and what they spent most of their time talking about was Secretary Nielsen's statement, which is what Texas v. Nielsen spoke about, was the um, the amount of time that Secretary Nielsen spent on the that reliance interest, right? So it was it was one sentence. It was a short sentence saying that DACA recipients needed their work authorizations. And so, yeah, I think... I think that was the extent to which they they focused on Texas v. Nielsen. Yeah, so they spoke about the extent of reliance, right? So it's not just DACA recipients needing to stay in the country. It's also the amount of the amount that they contribute to society in terms of like when they work and when they're in school and you know, they purchase homes, they purchase cars, they purchase all kinds of goods and that's money that's going back into the economy. Furthermore, the administration argued that there was undue burden 
on the administration to keep filing these applications, but the fees paid for that, right? So it's a five, it's a $495 fee that DACA recipients have to pay every two years. And that I think um, SCOTUS talked about how the fact that these fees were paying for that administrative burden. And so, so yeah, I think what I think it's important to contextualize here too, you know, the Supreme Court really only has until June of 2020 of this year to issue a ruling here. And this is going to become sort of the seminal case in terms of DACA litigation, right? Like even the Texas versus Nielsen decisions, um, and obviously this appeal out of the Ninth Circuit are going to turn to that. Were there indications from either side that this was on its way to becoming the seminal case? I mean, was there language to indicate the gravity and importance of this case that was being argued? Oh, of course. Um, I think the government posited that it was definitely on the lines of, of making sure that there was that separation between um, agencies, right? And so I think the government was trying to set that precedent, whereas the Supreme Court was focused on on ensuring that the administration had done it had done it properly. That you know they weren't they they will be ruling on the legality of DACA, perhaps. You know it's not it's not the how of the ruling I think is what it's going to affect us more so than than the ruling itself, right? Because then if it's if it's ruled that DACA was unlawful to begin with, then that will prohibit further or future administrations from passing or from having executive decisions that are kind of in the same realm. Right. right. And, th- and that sort of transcends the executive branch, the judicial branch. And then obviously there is the potential that the legislative branch could get involved in this at some point, too. Correct. Oh, uh, and that's I mean, that's I think from from a public policy standpoint and from the standpoint of just like immigration rights advocacy, I think that's been the issue all along, that the legislative branch has not been as involved as they need to be. There has been legislation surrounding DACA or possible DACA recipients, what they were called dreamers at the beginning, since 2000. There's actually kind of a historical background here. There was a bill on the Senate floor right before 9-11, but then 9-11 happened and it was never touched again. And it would have been successful, like they had all of the votes necessary but it died on the Senate floor because of 9-11. And ever since that, you know, the can has been kicked until now. 20 years later, it's before the Supreme Court. And it not only affects those who are renewing their DACA, their DACA statuses now as, as a result of those injunctions, it also affects those who were not able to apply for DACA to begin with because the doors, the doors are closed now, but a decision might reopen those doors. So you're hitting the nail on the head. I mean, obviously, this decision that's going to come down the pipeline, we don't, obviously, we never know when, but sometime before June, um, it's going to have tremendous ramifications across, you know, all kinds of, we covered the three branches of government, and that does not even get into um, the morality of the people that this is going to touch. So, you know, bearing that gravity in mind, I think a lot of people, when they hear about Supreme Court cases, Oftentimes, it doesn't really register with with the average person. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. things like gay marriage, these types of cases, um, abortion, those get a lot of of public limelight. And I think this case is well on its way to getting there. Talk to me a little bit about the mood of the room when you're there. I mean, you know, you touched on the fact that 
the lawyers and, and the court themselves are all aware of the gravity of this decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and in your op-ed in the Chicago Sun-Times, which, quick plug, if you haven't read, I <laughs> highly recommend that you do. But you mentioned that Justice Sotomayor made a comment that acknowledged the gravity of it. Right. So right. with that comment in mind, and if you'd like to share it with our listeners, that'd be great. What about the mood of the room, the people that were there to spectate? It was, it's a very small room, obviously, and people had been standing outside waiting to get in. We actually, our flight was canceled and then, and then it was delayed, so we were running on about two hours of sleep, um, which super fun. I recommend it highly if you're about to go listen to SCOTUS speak. <laughs> a notoriously not stressful event made even less stressful, Absolutely. I assume. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the lawyer for, for Regents, he's an undocumented attorney. Um, which I think just added to the importance of everything. You know, his the stakes were high for everyone, but very, very high for him. Um, and there were a few members of Congress in the audience. There were a few leaders of different immigrant rights organizations, a few people that I knew from from just my time in in that work. And it was really cool. It was kind of like a like a reunion. It was very somber. Um, it felt like we were kind of going to a funeral. Um, even though there wasn't going to be a decision that day, um, it just felt it just felt very heavy. And even though we were kind of happy to see each other, like one of my very best friends was there, and I don't get to see her that often. It, we were good. It was good to see each other and to both to all be there for this, you know, big occasion that not a lot of people were able to go to. But it just it felt like why were we even there to begin with? Like why why is this happening? Like why can't this country just recognize that we give so much and that we are deserving of this small little thing that doesn't even lead to citizenship. It right. literally just keeps us here for two years at a time. So yeah, I think that was kind of the mood in the room for for DACA recipients who I saw. And then for members of Congress, I feel like it was it was good to know that they were there. It was kind of them like lending their support and obviously just being there because it's history, it right? History is. in the making. And I just kept seeing people file in who had been sitting on the on the street for the last night waiting to get in and it was just it was really beautiful to kind of see how the community came together for this however I felt once the once the argument started everyone just was kind of getting kind of restless and then when Justice Sotomayor said her her line everything just got like really quiet and there was there were gasps like audible gasps everyone just I remember like I like it was painful like <laughs> I winced and like gasped um because do you want to do you want to share what yeah, she said yes actually I like jotted it down very quickly <laughs> like as she said it, I was like but then I I realized it's such a big deal that everyone's gonna remember yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um it said she said it's not about the law but about our choice to destroy lives so she very she very well like reined in that this isn't just about, you know, administrative law or the executive's power to do X or even about, you know, the agency. It's It goes way far beyond that. It goes to the 700,000 people who, without DACA, are not able to live here. They are not able to be the breadwinners of their families anymore and have a future. You know, mostly people who have been here since they were babies. Well, it's interesting, too. I think, you know, she, in this one statement, um, is sort of able to encompass, obviously, her argument and her her approach and her theory on it, but also acknowledge 
the rest of the bench that Mm -hmm. there are eight other people that are going to rule on this Mm -hmm. um, and she's sort of able to allude to what she expects from them and we're going to touch a little bit on expectations um, in this episode but you know you mentioned you mentioned that once the arguments started the mood of the room changed right the attorneys that are arguing for the government that are arguing effectively to end DACA um, Mm -hmm. what kinds of things were they focused on was it a uh, a constitutionality argument or were they focused on the repeal itself what were they really looking at so they were focused on the the broadness of daca and how if the precedent that that any president can grant this type of relief for such a broad category of people was set by scotus kind of continuing daca then future administrations would be so inclined to continue doing this, right? So, so a slippery slope sort of yes. concern. Yeah, yeah. But then I think opposing counsel is like, no, you know, this, it's just, you know, work authorization. And they were like, no, like, we're not just safeguarding people from getting deported. We're also giving them the ability to work here. And that's that's a status, basically, that we're giving them. And that, I think the, the government was just not happy about that at all. They kept claiming that it was a violation of, the INA provision with that broadness, so the the Immigrant and Naturalization Act. So yeah, I think also the government kept saying that they did, in fact, take into account the reliance interest, um, and that the wind down was the reliance interest. You know, their their um, later on statement that they would continue to receive renewals, but just not new new DACA applications and no more advanced parole. They were taking into account that people were relying on this permit when they were allowing renewals. What about, you know, what happened to the mood of the room as these arguments start happening? Was there animosity, do you think, between the, the lawyers that were arguing for the government and obviously this big contingency uh, that you were a part of that you mentioned? Was there, was there some sort of, not feuding necessarily, but could you feel that there was tension between the two sides? Or was it much more of, look, we're just here to argue the law and this is what we're here to do? I don't think there was contention between the two. I think they were both very professional. I think for me, that was amazing because if I'd been, if I'd been, you know, Regents Council, I would have been like, ah, like <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that that goes to his credit that he was very well poised and he knew what he was doing. And he obviously had done so much work to be here, to be where he was and to be able to argue such a seminal case. Um, I think what surprised me was when I, I heard the attorney for the government, his, he was Hispanic, like he, he was of Hispanic descent. I, I like made a note of that. I was like, whoa, like, <laughs> like obviously your family immigrated at some point, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, even if not, even if your family was Texan and had never immigrated anywhere, you're connected to the, to an immigrant community at some point, right? Obviously, if it's your job, like, you have to do what you have to do, right? If you're asked to argue a case, you're asked to argue the case. Um, so I think I was kind of wanting to know more about him. But again, it, it doesn't matter. You know, he was an advocate at the end of the day. True. Well, and, and, you know, you you mentioned the restraint that the Council for um, the Regents mm-hmm. showed and the professionalism, um, and it's pretty remarkable bearing in mind that arguing before the Supreme Court when it comes to being an appellate mm-hmm. litigator is obviously that's the, the cream of the crop. Right. That's as prestigious as it gets. Right. Um, yeah. I want to pick your brain a little bit about, you know, obviously what's happening inside the courthouse is is historic and um, 
you know, is going to it's going to shape a lot of American policy as it pertains to this issue. But tell me a little bit about what's happening outside the courthouse. So in the D.C. area, was there awareness that this was happening? Were there were there people that were aware that this argument was happening on this day? Oh, absolutely. There were actions all over the place. I had a few friends who were partaking in the actions. We we went to the Senate and spoke to to Senator Dick Durbin that day. And we spoke to staff from Doug Jones's office back in Alabama. Just even the their moods were very telling. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just kind of this pervasive thing, like throughout DC, anywhere that we went, it just it seemed like that was kind of taking over. Um, so it wasn't just confined to SCOTUS; it was it was beyond that. So yeah, I th- I think it was interesting to kind of see the the legislative reaction. Yeah, there was actually um, Dick Durbin shared our stories on the Senate floor that day, um, which was really cool. And on Twitter, if that and, and matters Twitter, to some. <laughs> on Twitter. Um, so yeah, that was that was cool. But I think the biggest takeaway there was just understanding that we had the privilege of being there, but there's just so many people who who are affected by this way more than, than we think, right? Um, and... Again, I think Justice Sotomayor's statement just speaks to that. And also I think that I was astounded by the other more conservative-leaning justices um, asking the questions that they were asking of the government, um, which I thought thought was good. I, I hadn't expected that. So the conservative justices were pushing back on the government more than you thought they might? Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about that. Which which yeah. justices in particular stood out to you, and what, what kind of questions were they asking? Yeah, again, all blur, but <laughs> um, I, I think, can't possibly imagine why. <laughs> yeah, so I think a lot of it was um, on the reviewability and on the reliance, the reliance interest. Again, it was mostly all about that. Yeah, Justice Thomas was um, kind of like back in his seat, hanging out the whole time. Um, it's kind of just a, a thing he does. Apparently, I did some research on it afterwards. Yeah, he's he, no—he's notorious for um, never asking anything. Yeah. Like he's so yeah. stoic on the bench. Yeah, it's crazy. and he was just hanging back, um, leaning as far back in his chair as he could. I couldn't even see the top of his head at <laughs> certain times. I was like, "Whoa, how is he not falling on the ground?" Um, but yeah, even he like jumped in and asked a couple questions, which again, I think everyone just was like, "Whoa, like what's going on?" <laughs> and yeah, I think um, Justice Ginsburg and her you know, ever dissenting way. She was, I think, also going in on the reliance. She was more actually, so she was talking more about like the discretionary part of it and how the the agency, you know, didn't have discretion because, so she, yes, Justin's Gisbert, <laughs> she talked about Caroline's um, footnote four. I remember because I like hit asterisks on it. On it. I was like, oh, Sussex would be really glad. <laughs> um, and yeah. The kind of like the enforcement of laws and the change of perception with the reviewability of the initial DACA. Yeah. So, so it's interesting you, you know, in this one case, um, you've got administrative law being discussed, you know, who has what authority and why mm-hmm. uh, in tandem with the constitutionality issue mm-hmm. of both DACA itself and the repeal. Mm-hmm. And then you've also got judges and lawyers making these really profound moral humanitarian arguments and, and posing these really, really profound questions. Right. In the end, were you surprised as to this, the sort of dynamic of these questions at play, or is it sort of in line with what you might have expected? I honestly didn't expect it to be so focused on the human aspect of it. I thought it was mostly just going to be purely legal 
questions and and I honestly was very surprised by it and I think it was it was good to know that that was happening because like as as you and I know like in con law you're always you're always kind of questioning like well why aren't you talking about about the people why are you mostly just talking about um the law which obviously like has to happen but well on that note I think we're going to take a quick break um and when we come back we're going to sort of get into what happens next um and what this really means moving forward Welcome back, everybody. Thanks again to Fernanda Spieler for being here with us. Um, In the first half of the episode, we touched on the Regents case that was before the court in November, um, which is the DACA case. And and Fernanda did a great job explaining the the mood of the room and the arguments themselves. And in the second half of this episode, we are going to dive into what this really means moving forward. And we're obviously lucky that Fernanda is here because she provides such a unique perspective. So it's obvious that the consequences of this case Um, and the consequences if DACA is fully repealed could be dire. Um, Per year, DACA population in the United States contributes about $1.4 billion to federal taxes, $1.6 billion to state and local taxes. They contribute about $2 billion to Social Security, $470 million to Medicare taxes, and they carry about $16.8 billion of spending power. So they're, you know, generally speaking, this is a tax-paying group of people. Despite fear-mongering, DACA recipients are statistically less prone to commit crimes. Um, According to a study by the Libertarian Cato Institute, the incarceration rate among native-born Americans is actually 14% higher than it is for DACA recipients. So with these stats in mind, it's relatively clear that DACA recipients are relatively quote-unquote good Americans. They do what they're supposed to do, they follow the law, and they pay their taxes. So Fernanda, what do you think it is that motivates this push from the government perspective to eliminate DACA? I think there's this obvious issue with xenophobia in the United States and this pervasive kind of thought of America first in conservative realms. I actually um, saw a little bit of that of that when I was a very unintelligent decision of mine. I scrolled through the Twitter comments on my op-ed that um, Senator Dick Durbin shared on Twitter and it was just like basically, oh, you're stealing, you're stealing a spot from from someone, from a deserving American at, at the law school. Like, why you shouldn't be in law school? Like, you're you're a criminal. Like, you you don't you're here illegally. Like, how can you be the? How can you be in law school? Um, it's kind of that thought, you know, the thought that like, so yeah, you came into this country illegally. So ergo, like everything that you do after that is going to be illegal and a criminal and you know, suspect to, to higher scrutiny. And I think, I think as much as, you know, Trump was saying on his campaign trail, like, we're, we're not going to do anything to DACA recipients. But then other times he would say, we will, we'll get rid of DACA. So it's, (laughs) he kind of didn't know what to do, right? So then the most important thing to know is that this is, this was all like a political ploy, right? Um, He was under fire. He, yeah, during actually during the time that DACA was rescinded, he was feeling he was at the at the height of his political pressure, um, and I think that that was a lot of the reason why he ended up deciding to do it when he did. Um, I think it was just kind of something that he always held in his back pocket, and it was this thing that he was just kind of dangling in front of in front of 
you know, DACA recipients, um, liberals, and even conservatives who were um, sympathetic to DACA recipients. Well, obviously, you know, it's tough to summarize the feelings of a nation, and I sort of just put you on the spot to try and summarize how every American um, feels about this. But, you know, from your perspective, having published this op-ed now um, and, and having, you know, multiple sets of interactions with people in the public realm, you know, you've spoken in Congress before, um, or been spoken about in Congress before, um, you've met with high-ranking politicians. Is there something that stands out particularly to you as to how people feel about you individually and then, you know, the community that you represent? Is there a, a certain feeling that just resonates more than others, do you think? Yeah, so I think there's this fallacy about um, the moral, kind of like the, the good immigrant, right? So there's a distinction between, you know, those DACA recipients who pursued a higher degree and those who, you know, just work at work wherever, you know, restaurant, you know, retail, whatever, and saying that they're they're worse than than this DACA recipient who went to college who is in grad school. And I think that's just completely wrong. You know, um, there is no one path to to success or one one thing that's better than the other in terms of like how you provide for your family and how you live your life. And I think putting putting DACA recipients who have decided to do something different with their lives on a pedestal and making them seem like they're better than other DACA recipients, I think that's like that's terrible. And I hate that. But at the same time, there's this, you know, there's this like duality, like, well if if this helps like tell the story and if this helps make sure that people know who we are then, you know, that's okay, right? And I think, like, I'm kind of caught in the crosshairs, right? Because, like, I come from from a family where, um, like, my parents immigrated also illegally, and there's basically no relief for them until my brother turns 21 and can, can petition for them, right? So they're the bad immigrants. They're, like, the worst of the worst. They brought me here through no fault of my own. I acquired unlawful status. And so, you know you're kind of like in this in-between of advocating for the whole community, but also you're at the top and you're having to advocate for yourself too. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's rough and it's, it's frustrating because I'm no better than anyone else. You know, I just happen to be a little louder sometimes. <laughs> With this, this duality that you've mentioned in mind, um, obviously this case is going to have tremendous ramifications no matter how it's decided for both you and your family for every DACA recipient, every immigrant, both lawful and unlawful. I mean, this is our children or the next generation, however you'd like to phrase it, are going to read this case when they study constitutional law. I mean, this is going to become one of those cases. I think there's a cumulative expectation amongst the legal community and generally aware citizens that the court will, in line with what it's done really since John Roberts became chief justice, continue to uphold that 5-4 split and rule in a conservative fashion. Um, And in this case, that would mean ruling in favor of the Trump administration. Would it surprise you? um, You know, there there have been cases where John Roberts has defied expectations and ruled in favor, uh, excuse me, ruled in line with the more liberal justices. Would it surprise you if the court in this case defied those expectations um, and ruled in favor of the regents of California and therefore in favor of DACA? 
Yeah, I think it absolutely would surprise me. I think it's something that just in seeing that the way that the Supreme Court has been has been ruling lately would just completely be out of line. Um, I think especially seeing what has happened in recent weeks with recent immigration situations, it's I think it seems as though they're not willing to set any type of like positive precedent for immigrants at this moment, which is terrible because so many decisions are coming before them. So, so yeah, it, it would be very surprising. And, you know, this isn't to say that I, I don't, you know, kind of have that room for hope. It's, it's not something that I'm really banking on. Well, before we, we went live, you and I talked off air about this um, decision that we're going to talk about right now. And I can tell that you are eager to address it. So um, on Friday of this past week, the Supreme Court, again, with a, a split of 5-4, allowed the government to enforce a rule um, specifically in Illinois called the public charge rule. So first, before we talk about the decision, Fernanda, can you explain a little bit about what the public charge rule is mm-hmm. and what that means for people um, that dire- are directly affected by it? Right. So the public charge rule applies only to those immigrants who are applying for relief or for legal permanent resident status through adjustment of status through a family, a family member. Um, so that would be spouses, children, parents filing for adjustment of status. And so it sets forth a separate application, separate from the, the adjustment of status and the petition for a family member that is about 20 pages long and um, asks you for, asks you whether you've ever applied for public benefits whether you have health insurance and whether and what your credit score is and ask you to submit your credit report. Um, you have super invasive stuff just to basically prove that you're never going to be a public charge to the government um, after acquiring status. I think it's, it's a way to keep out poor immigrants um, or just really anyone who hasn't, hasn't been like super savvy and kept their credit score up, you know, um, that could, I think um, I was kind of juxtaposing this with like the character and fitness, right? Um, we have to submit all these things. Well, now, like just to even be able to have status in the U.S., you have to submit this. Like it's it's kind of on the same level of rigorous, uh, I guess, like to prove that. Yeah. So Le- level of rigor. My bad. <laughs> so the the Supreme Court has upheld this as legal for now. Um, there are couple of cases that are pending across the country. There's one um, that's going to go before the Court of Appeals in the Seventh Circuit, which is here in Chicago. Right. So with this in mind, and obviously this sort of, it might give us a little bit of insight into mm-hmm. how the court feels um, as it pertains to right. this regent's case. Right. So from your perspective then, what's next? Are we, if we choose to be advocates on this issue, are we then left to turn to the other two branches of government? Um, and, you know, with this question in mind, I'd lo- you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but I, again, want to turn to what Justice Sotomayor said, um, and she said the court itself, and this is a direct quote, is partly to blame for the breakdown in the appellate process. And I, I think what she's alluding to here is, you know, this sort of animosity and tension that's developed in the country, um, the Supreme Court, obviously, and it goes without saying, has played a, a key role in that. So from your perspective now, right. if the court does not defy the expectations and does rule in favor of the government, how do we move forward as advocates on this issue? Yeah. So I think from the very beginning, the the game has always been focused on Congress. They're the only ones who have the power to really 
put this legislation in stone and make sure that DACA recipients and other similar groups have relief and have an ability to stay here. So I think that's mainly where we should be focusing. Um, I think the other side of that is also to just like stay informed and stay up to date on everything. And whether it's DACA, whether it's the public charge, whether it's, you know, refugees or um, those who are waiting to get in, you know, I think I think it's all a big group, right? You can't say, oh, I love DACA recipients and then on the same side of the spectrum be against, you know, refugees, right? So I think not not to say that we're, you know, we're all this big, huge group, but I think it's it all leads to the same place of this like xenophobia and this lack of understanding for others and for situations different from our own. Well, I think, uh, Fernanda, you are obviously an expert on this topic, both from your experiences personally and professionally. Uh, and, and we are so lucky to have you here at Loyola, and we're lucky that you are willing to come and talk with us here on the Podvocate. Um, I encourage all of our listeners to check out our website. Um, in the next few days, uh, the Podvocate will have posted all of these um, sources where we get our stats from as it relates to this episode. And uh, we're going to continue to stay in touch with Fernanda um, and keep up to date with this issue bearing in mind that the court will issue a ruling before June. So, Fernanda, thank you so much for being here. Um, As always, we appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Alritz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman, and our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing us the resources and support to make this show possible, and thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue DeNovo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.